0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Philip Ewell about his book on music theory and making music more welcoming for everyone, published by University of Michigan Press in 2023. On Music Theory is an unflinching look at white supremacy in the academy, specifically in the discipline of music theory, although Ewell's insights and arguments can apply just as well to all music studies and most, if not all, other academic fields. Using meticulous research and his own experiences during a bruising tenure battle and the backlash against a presentation he made in a plenary panel during the 2019 Society for Music Theory Conference, Ewell documents the results of music theory's white racial frame. He shows how the power traditionally wielded by white cisgender men in academia is supported by the methods of inquiry, the pedagogy, and the very music that most music specialists study, perform, and teach, and how this white racial frame makes it difficult for anyone else to feel comfortable, much less succeed in the field. Ultimately, the book is a call to attend to the myriad ways that people are excluded, denigrated, and marginalized by the systems within which academics and musicians work. He offers solutions and strategies to make music theory better and, as the book title says, make music more welcoming for everyone. So welcome, Philip. I'm so glad to have you here to talk about this amazing book. Um, You are a specialist in 19th century Russian classical music. What what made you decide to write this particular book?
0: Uh, Well, first, Kristen, just let me say thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, What made me write this book? Um, Well, yes, I am a Russianist and a cellist. So, um, it is a little bit strange, I suppose, but I'm also a black American and, um, I could always see in the academic study of music that were, there were injustices, um, but they never had come to the fore as they did starting, I would say with the tenure battle that I, um, that you mentioned in your setup piece. And, um, I also talk a little bit about it in the beginning of the book. Um, I was a somewhat, I don't know what I could say. I was taken aback by, um, how aggressive uh, it was that uh, that somebody would try to and this happens uh, quite quite often actually with BIPOC people in, in the in the academy um, would try to essentially fire people uh, fire me um, because essentially that I you know for anti black reasons and I kind of went off on a path of discovery after that and I read a lot of race scholarship which led me to feminist scholarship and queer scholarship and um, and 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 ways that we can combat uh, the things that are that are part of the Music Academy that we don't talk about so often. So um, there is one line that I will read because uh, from this uh, introduction of my book, because it does kind of sum up, I think, uh, one of the main goals of the book I wrote. uh, This is uh, in the introduction. Thus, perhaps my main goal in on music theory is anti-racism, which I come by through exposing what music theory looks like from the vantage point of a person it was designed to ignore. And if you, if you disagree that music theory was designed to ignore blackness, just ask yourself why jazz music theory has been, has evolved entirely outside of the music theory mainstream. So this book is not so much a guidebook for how we change things, although I do have many suggestions and recommendations peppered throughout. Um, it really more is a, a, a testament of, of where we are and, and, and for why we must make these changes. So uh, they just kind of were striking to me uh, starting with this 10 battle about 10 years ago. And I was able to finally find the language, which is difficult to do because these are difficult topics, uh, as you know.
1: Um- <clears throat> what is the difference between noting that the canon for Western classical music is mostly 18th and 19th century music and is completely written by white men. At least I think if you asked 100 people what the canon of classical music would is, that would they would all come up with just uh, music by white men. And that the people who work in music theory are overwhelmingly also white men. You document in your book that SMT is well over 90% white, the Society for Music Theory, that is. What's the difference between just noting those facts and explaining that music theory has a white racial frame?
0: Great question. Um, so, yes, I'm certainly not the first one to um, <clears throat> excuse me, point out that uh, the, the numbers, right, that that we if we if we talk about a musical canon, we are talking about white men for sure um, or the makeup of the Society for Music Theory, um, which the Society for Music Theory tells us that those are their numbers. I cite um, in terms of the whiteness. Uh, people with tenure, about 94 percent are, in fact, white. The difference between that and pointing out a white racial frame is maybe I could could put it in terms of layers. So the first layer is simply pointing out, oh, wow, I'm at a meeting of the Society for Music Theory and the business meeting, and I'm just noting that almost everybody here is white, 100 people, 95 white people. Um, And that's the same as pointing out that the quote unquote canon, a, a, a Western canon, Uh, is comprises only white men so beethoven schubert bach uh, chopin we all know the names that's just the first layer the second layer actually might begin to discuss some of the structures how they were put together how they were conceived in the united states those structures were initially conceived in the 19th century not in the 18th century but in the 19th new york philharmonic 1842 uh, Oberlin Conservatory 1865, uh, Peabody Institute, 1857, <laughs> Yale School of Music 1894, etc. Um, and once you realize that if you if you're going down deeper into the second and the third layer, if you're down at the fourth layer already of our music institutions, you realize that they were very much uh, conceived of by and for white men. That's literally what they said. It, it wasn't a secret in the 19th century. They literally said the, these, I mean, it's not by chance that the New York Philharmonic took 120 years to hire its first African-American violinist, Sanford Allen in 1962. And by the way, it took them 80 years to hire their first woman. That was uh, harpist, Steffi Goldner in 1922. That's not by chance. Uh, that was very much by design. And when you look at the design of the academic study of music in our country, you realize that it is extremely exclusionist, extremely unjust with respect to race and gender and so many other things. So you have to go down a few layers beyond the, oh, you know, it's just, yeah, sure, there are lots of white people who do X, Y, and Z. And yes, they are mostly, uh, without question, cisgender men. Um, But once you start going down a few layers and it doesn't it's not really that deep, actually, you don't have to go down that that far to realize that some of the people who were so key to American music were actually really horrible people like Percy Granger or John Powell or Carl Seashore or George Eastman, Um, really quite awful people. Um, And it's also not by chance that uh, a person like Heinrich Schenker, who was also a really awful person, if you actually read what he wrote about people, um, became so important to American music theory. I think I mentioned in the book at some point that um, it's not actually despite Schenker's racism that he became so prominent. It is, in fact, because of it, because his views about race in the early 20th century completely aligned with the music academies, um, uh, uh, American music academies ideals about what, uh, what studying music in this country could and should be.
1: Um, so since you brought up, um, uh, Heinrich Schenker and some other important figures in um, music theory and in music study in general, maybe we should skip to that chapter and, and that part of your argument to further talk about this, how this white r- racial frame kind of uh, manifests itself. Um, and I remember I happened to be with Ellie Haisama um, in September of 2019, and she said, oh, we're going to do this panel about, uh, you know, for, for SMT, citing for music theory, it might be a little controversial. So I'm a musicologist. I don't normally pay attention to SMT uh, plenary panels, but I did this one. and initially, you know, my little corner of social media was like, yay, this is a great, you know, conference. We'd love this, this plenary panel, but that was not your experience at all, I don't think, certainly, as time progressed. And one of the things that happened as a result of that presentation, I'll I'll let you explain it, of course, is that an entire uh, volume of the Journal of Shankarian Studies was devoted to um, uh, responding to that plenary Session in a way that was both unethical, unscholarly, um, deeply unprofessional, and racist. Um, and uh, you really dig deep into that as an example. I, I interpreted it as an example of what happens when someone challenges that white racial frame and challenges um, these sort of deeply held assumptions. Um, and so, I can you talk more about that? Explain that uh, that experience.
0: Um, Absolutely. You know, I literally, as I was just reading the most recent uh, racial tragedy in the United States, um, when Ralph Yarl was just shot for trying to pick up his younger siblings uh, in Kansas City, I thought to myself, um, one way of actually, and, and of course, the person who's now in custody, I think he's an 84 year old white man. Uh, he will get off. Ultimately, I mean, I'm a black person, so I can say this with certainty. He'll get off and it will be part of the stand your ground law of Missouri. Right. Um, in a very uh, this is a strange analogy, but it's actually kind of a drawing from the same source. In, in a sense, the Shankarian response was a stand your ground response against a black person uh, criticizing someone that they don't want to be criticized. So they stood their ground essentially, but this is not the uh, you know the, no, no no firearms were discharged and this is not uh, the Florida legislature so they lost ultimately, um, and they simply could not abide a black person challenging this figure whom they view as something of a hero, despite uh, the fact that he was a very very reprehensible person, just if you look at actually what he wrote about people. So um, it was a a remarkable turn of events for me. Um, But ultimately, you know, it uh, as I said in the book, it is a great gift to everyone. What happened with the Journal of Shankarian Studies, because it just nobody in their right mind could possibly say that race and racism and white supremacy have nothing to do with music theory, which is what was said for many decades. And it's also important to point out uh, that race and whiteness have nothing to do with music theory is a very common refrain, but it's only a common refrain since about the 1960s. That's when colorblindness really kind of took over. Right. When Jim Crow racism collapsed under its own weight. In other words, 100 years ago it was it was not only acceptable to uh, say that white people were superior in music to non-white people. It was it was required of uh, to be successful. And obviously it was required to be a cisgender man too. that. That just goes without saying. So it was open It people talked about it. they wrote about it. This is like the third or fourth or fifth layer down that I, I mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, That it was exactly the reasoning that the George Eastman's and Carl Seashores and and John Powell's and Carl rubbles um, that they gave and up up to and including the Milton Babbitt's and other people who were also very anti black and anti woman. um, The reasons that they gave for the supremacy of 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 their ideas uh, in our academies so. The, the whole, the whole, uh, just to finish the point uh, about the volume 12, um, it, yes, ultimately it did redound to my benefit that I didn't predict that I didn't want that necessarily. I simply wanted us to have an adult conversation about race and racism in American music theory. And as they essentially, uh, responded, they said over our dead bodies, we're not going to do that. Okay. Well, they might not want to do that, but other people have picked up the, the, uh, the thread and actually are having some very interesting conversations now. So uh, I think it actually is a very interesting time to be a music theorist uh, in in this country.
1: Just because not everyone who will listen to this podcast will know who Heinrich Schenker is and will know some of the figures that you talk about. Can you be more specific about um, who Heinrich Schenker is, what his theories are and, and sort of their role in music theory so people who aren't familiar with that can understand a little bit more about what you're talking about? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, Um, sure. So Heinrich Schenker, uh, 1868 to 1935, was an Austrian Jew uh, who uh, was a very significant music theorist. He was a very fine pianist uh, and a a coach and a a chamber musician. So he was um, actually, I like to say, the best type of pianist because he was not the soloist, right? He actually listened (laughs) as he played the piano, so good for him. And also, I would say on on the positive side of the ledger, he very much was interested in helping people become better musicians, which I, you know, I like that. That's a really good thing. Um, However, his uh, method of looking at music in which he was very much a linear thinker, a left to right horizontal kind of uh, musician. It's not it's not so amazing. Right. I mean, anyone who's taken. A classical music lesson knows that you're supposed to play through the phrase sing through the phrase don't play like quarter note to quarter note half note to half note but actually think in terms of three bars five bars eight bars of music right so play through the phrase that's kind of what he did in a harmonic sense uh in a tonal sense and he talked about musical structure now he only had 12 composers whom he considered to be genius composers like the absolute cream of the crop, the best of the best. Um, Almost all the names you would know, of course, the the listener would know, uh, Beethoven, Bach, Schubert, uh, Schubert, Mozart, Schumann, Chopin. Um, But one name the listener would not know probably, and that's Domenico Scarlatti, uh, which I love to point out because it just proves the silliness of, of coming up with a list of 12 composers who are better than all others. It's really completely absurd to think in those terms. Uh, in other words, Domenico Scarlatti was a better genius of a composer than Richard Wagner or, or Peter Tchaikovsky or, or Igor Stravinsky, all of whom were quite active during Schenker's life, right? He died in 35, um, 1935. So what happened was in the 1930s, um, uh, starting with Hans Weisse, Uh, His students and disciples came over to the east coast of the United States for the most part in here in New York City, where I'm located, uh, Manus School of Music, Queens College and um, New England Conservatory. I think one of them ended up in Chicago at Roosevelt University, and they started uh, promoting his music theoretical ideas. But as I just said, five, 10 minutes ago, the racism actually made it more appealing to the 1930s and 1940s music academies in the United States. And that, is, um, uh, that essentially lead, led to what I call the creation of hostile environments for those of us who don't identify as white cisgender men. So um, th- that's what Shankarian theory has become. Uh, a, another very th- uh, large part of the Journal of Shankarian Studies a pushback against my uh, critique, they called it an attack on Heinrich Schenker, was the fact that I never mentioned that he was Jewish. And actually, uh, <laughs> I won't call anyone's name out, but it was a Jewish friend of mine, actually, who to whom I gave this talk uh, in, in preparation, who said, you know what, Phil? Take that bit about Schenker being Jewish out. It's not not doing anything good for you. It's not working. That's not the point. And this person was absolutely right. I thank that person. Um, Profusely for that because it's true. I I don't you know I, I, at the beginning of this section on Heinrich Schenker I I mentioned five unwritten rules that you're supposed to do when you uh, deal with Heinrich Schenker and um, I have them here and uh, essentially if possible you don't mention his racism at all and if you if it's mentioned you feign ignorance. You're supposed to then number two put up a wall between his racism and his music theories, very important. And then three, the third point is the one I'm just mentioning. Now, you're supposed to invoke Shanker's Jewishness and use this as a shield to protect him. Um, because his, his words about people were so very repulsive. It's you can't just erase them. They're all out there on the internet for anyone to see. And now, now in English translation, Um, and number four, you contextualize Heinrich Schenker and say, oh, well, everybody was worse back then. They were more sexist, more racist. That's the contextualization, the over-contextualization. And the fifth point I point out here in my book, you fortify that, that cement barrier between his, uh, his repulsive beliefs about people on the one hand and his admittedly useful, uh, ideas about music on the other. And I very much uh, did not adhere to those five points. I never mentioned that he was Jewish. And I absolutely suggested that the wall was created of, by, and for white men, whiteness and maleness, let's say, and that uh, you can easily trace racism in his ideas. And that, of course, was when they had their stand your ground moment, that very much backfired on, on them. Uh, the, the, what I call the 10 core authors of, uh, of the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, volume 12, which is now out there and is memorialized. And um, yeah, it, uh, it was a very, very strange occurrence. But Heinrich Schenker, uh, just to finish the point, uh, was without question an extremely important figure in the history of, uh, of uh, American music theory And uh, he absolutely had some very interesting musical ideas. And he was a deeply flawed character whose hatred of all types of peoples has infected what we do in the academic study of music, not just in music theory, but in our music academies and institutions with a hatred that has become normative, actually. Um, And it's something that I think I will continue to point out because it's it's something that has actually made it difficult for, for other people who are not white cisgender men enjoy uh, the academic study of music as they should all be able to.
1: Um, Thank you for that, uh, for explaining all of that. Um, One of the things that jumped out at me uh, when you were talking about Schenker was this idea that he could pick out the 12 geniuses. And that sort of language about music, particularly classical music, is so common. It's, um, you know, it's in three quarters of the program notes you read. So-and-so is a genius. This is a masterwork. Um, And I was really struck by that language comes up over and over again in some of the interactions that you cite in it uh, throughout the book um, not just in this JSS uh, um, debacle um, wh- how does that language that sort of masterwork genius language perpetuate this white supremacy uh, white racial frame in all music study I'm certainly not saying that musicology doesn't have its own deeply uh, problematic aspects as well but um, you know sp- how does that terminology? Um,
0: yeah contribute to all this? That's a great question. Um, Let me start by kind of going in from the the back end, maybe. I often hear people who are, jazz would probably be the first uh, non-European classical genre that I would cite, where people often attribute the same type of hagiographic language, master, genius, masterwork, towering figure, titanic, uh, genius, you know, a great masters of of, of this canon. You can can hear that language spoken about Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, right? Dizzy Gillespie, the big jazzers. And uh, the one thing that I I almost immediately say when I hear that is just like, they were all very, very good at what they did. Please don't get me wrong. But that type of hagiographic language just gets us nowhere. It really does. It immediately, it's a value judgment on all of those people who, are not miles davis who are not duke ellington and it's actually very harmful whether if you use it in jazz or other if if you say that beyonce right is a master artist uh she is an outstanding artist she's brilliant i I would use those she's certainly significant influential those are all words that i would use but i very much personally shy away from uh the 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 language that we've all been taught that you're citing here kristen your question to to parrot about these 12 composers, one of whom was Domenico Scarlatti. I love to point out um, because uh, that language is, is is part of a structure, right? It's part of of the way we're taught to think about these things. And I think maybe the best um, uh, part of the book that I would cite to, to, to show how and why this language is, is so flawed is my quotation of Ijioma Aluo's um, so you want to talk about race, where she talks about white supremacy as a pyramid structure, a pyramid scheme. And she says that everyone's waiting for their bite at the apple, still trying to get uh, you know get that great whiteness, right? that masterful uh, aspect of whiteness. But it's a pyramid scheme. And in any pyramid scheme, obviously there are only a few names at the very top and for us that's beethoven and mozart and bach let's say right those are the three at the top probably beethoven is the absolute pinnacle and then mozart and bach are right below one and two right well that's the, the top of the pyramid it's, it goes out from there right then then you have your chopin and your schumann that's like the third but it's still very very top of the pinnacle right of the of the pyramid um, and uh, what, what that does is, is it essentially casts everyone else as lesser, as, as, uh, as uh, not as great as, right? And why the pyramid scheme is such a great uh, analogy is because it very much uh, reflects what we have all been taught in our American music institutions, that there is this mythological uh, hierarchy with Beethoven at the top and everyone else kind of in rungs below that. When in fact, that is of course, complete nonsense. As soon as I say that detractors are going to say, Oh, Phil thinks Beethoven was a bad composer. I'm like, no, I don't. Never said that never would. Um, It's just nonsense in the sense that there is a, a, a horizontal element of, 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 human beauty and greatness, just like all races of peoples are the equal to each other, and none is superior or inferior to another. Well, that's the same with musics and musical genres. Um, and uh, and uh, that language does not allow for us to entertain the idea that, for instance, Margaret Bonds, who wrote beautiful song cycles for piano and voice, can and should be mentioned right next to Robert Schumann, who also wrote song cycles for piano and voice. They were both very beautiful. When I say that, and I say that they were equally beautiful and that we should put them side by side, that very much upsets the underpinnings of the white racial frame of music theory. In fact, there are people who are indignant when they hear that, Uh, they are angry and they, they simply cannot abide a world in which we, we, we should be mentioning Margaret Bonds in the same breath as Franz Schubert, for example. And when I say that it is deeply rooted in white supremacy and patriarchy, because Margaret Bonds was not only black, she was a woman, then they'll get even more indignant, right? And the only answer that I've really ever heard from this indignation is it's not about race, it's not about gender, it's about greatness, it's about exceptionalism. But that's all they got. That's the only arrow in their quiver. And I'm just like, well, I don't engage with people like that. I'm not interested because it's an extremely facile argument. I think what's maybe most unnerving to people who might actually be upset by mentioning Margaret Bonds in the same breath as Franz Schubert is that they understand that many people simply don't agree with them that they should not be mentioned. In other words, people agree with the argument that I'm putting forth. And that's very unnerving to the power structures because that's never really happened before. It's not that, I, it's not that people haven't made many similar points to what I'm making here. I mean no disrespect to anyone. But, but by really focusing like a laser beam on the white supremacist and patriarchal roots of American music theory, I have definitely touched a nerve. There's no question about that. And um the unnerving aspect has been quite remarkable for me to um to witness. I, I have to be honest. Um but I'm not afraid of the people who, you know, who are so angry. And I, I, I'm not afraid of the people who are standing their ground, so to speak, right? Um I'm quite happy to engage in honest debate as so long as it's collegial and respectful but from so many people not just the journal of shankarian studies authors the 10 core authors there but from others it's not uh, collegial it's not respectful they are actually acting in anti-black fashion very often and i'm uninterested in taking part in my own dehumanization that's not going to happen
1: well i'm also struck by um, if you can get someone to Elucidate how Beethoven is a genius and why I don't know Margaret Bonds is not. For instance, the it often comes down to how self-referential those um, uh, the modes of uh, critique are, or the or their that's not the right word. Sort of the structures by which they're deciding something is a genius, right? It just doesn't apply to to all music. And why are those the structures that we only use to decide somebody is a genius, for for instance? So I notice, you know, complexity is really important in music. And that's what makes something, something, you know, better than other music, unless it's Gregorian chant, in which case it's fine, <laughs> but it's not complex, right? You know, you can always find a reason or melody is a lot more important than rhythm. And that's how we know that something is great, you know, but that's just that, those kinds of... Of, um, uh, standards are all just completely self-referential. And that's why Schenker I think is another reason why you can see the white racial frame in Schenker because the decisions he makes about what something is great is only because it, it does well when um, analyzed according to Schenker's ideas, right? Th- that music really works well for Schenker's ideas. And those two things are you know completely related. He created a theory that would work well for the music that he already thought was great, you know. Exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. And another reason is, it, I think it's important to point out that oftentimes people in 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 institutions who essentially are defenders of the status quo. Another reason that they'll say that we should be teaching Schubert above Mar- Margaret Margaret Bonzo or, or Nathaniel Dead or or James Cam or Clarence Cameron White or or, or whomever is, uh, I've I've heard this argument rolled out many times. Is that Well, unfortunately, black people and women were not able to study at the conservatories to hone their crafts in the same way as others who were, in fact, white men. They'll concede that point. Ergo, the music that was was conceived at the conservatories was up a higher level because of the fact that it was at a conservatory. To which I say, well, that's just hogwash. That's just silly. That's a very silly argument you're making, actually. Um, and if you don't understand why it's silly, well, then I'm not going to explain it to you because that's, uh, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm a uh, it's, I'm not proselytizing here. I'm not, uh, uh, you know, it's not my job to, uh, to try to engage with people who are, who are acting oftentimes, uh, if I could just say it frankly, in bad faith, right there. Are, and, and having said that, I should also say that there are many people who act in good faith and I very much in, enjoy speaking with people you know even if they are defenders of the status quo who come to me in good faith that certainly happens too and i, I should pump the brakes here and and, and acknowledge that and say that and, and say that i'm happy to have those conversations with people who want to have them
1: um so obviously the study uh, you know using Shankari analysis or 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 using it uncritically maybe is a better way to talk about it It is one way that the white racial frame and white supremacy is perpetuated in music studies writ large and music theory particularly um another way uh uh, might be through our pedag- other aspects of our pedagogy, right? And so I I was struck by um, your analysis of music theory texts and how uh, almost no examples are written by people that are not white men. And I, I will inject here that I interviewed Jane Hatter for a book she wrote about medieval music theory and discovered that the same music Examples used in 15th century musical treatises are the same examples that are in all the major music history texts that, that I use for that period. I mean, so literally, we've been using the same musical examples for hundreds and hundreds of years um, uh, across music studies. Can you talk about why that is a problem? You know, and and what uh, what do you see as well? Why is it a problem? That's the best way to ask, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, well, if you uh, if you limit yourself to Schenker's twelve great composers, right, and then maybe expand a little bit outside of that, and 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 get an example by Tchaikovsky, for example, um, into a textbook, you you're you're essentially saying that. Well, you're saying many things, right? You're saying uh, first, you're saying this is the only music that matters to your students, right? Then you're also saying that this. Is not just representative of a of Vienna, right? Because that's oftentimes the only place where those where the people came from. But it's it's representative, well, of Europe, and that's already very problematic because it's not. It's representative of Vienna and maybe Paris, um, and beyond Europe, you're actually saying it's just representative of music writ large and music theory, which is where I come in because the books that I look at were in fact, music theory, it's not like they say, this is a music theory textbooks that focuses on Viennese composers uh, of this 80 year period, right? Which is what it is, actually, that's actually an accurate description. Okay, you want to add Bach and Handel, you you can, maybe you can add London, because Handel was hanging out there for a while, you could certainly add Leipzig or Kut and places where Bach was active as a composer. So but you can like It's a very, very small area of the planet, right? And yet you present it as representative of the planet, right? Um, So it's obviously, we can use words like hegemonic, colonial. Um, I tend to focus on the fact that it's white and male, though colonial and hegemonic and uh, oppressive and other other adjectives could certainly be used. but I guess the, the final point is, is that you have, you have shown your students not even 0.1% of the world's music. It's, it's probably like 0.01% of the world's music. And you have told them that it's music and you've done so with a straight face. And you know, things are changing right now. Actually, I literally yesterday had a, had a conversation with a younger colleague and who, who said, and I say this, and I can't even keep a straight face. Maybe that's why I just said straight face. And he said that I can't keep a straight face. I have to have all these qualifications all the time. Yes, but there's other stuff. Yes, but this. And he's like, I can't handle making all these qualifications all the time, Phil. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, while I'm co-authoring a new music theory te- textbook for undergrads, I'm hoping that that can fill in some of those gaps. It really is remarkable how far behind music theory textbooks are. Uh, vis-a-vis other academic fields, who have had some honest interrogations of their racial past, right? Because if you're uh, in literature and you're in classics, or, or even philosophy, which is a very, very remarkably conservative field historically, you know, you, you 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 can look at this and you can read what's what's out there and, and you say, "Wow, this is some really ugly stuff we're reading about." Uh, indigenous peoples there, right? About black uh, Africans there and, and they can uh, make changes and they are making changes in art are all, all types of art uh, fields, right? The, you know, painting and sculpture. Well, you know, if, you, if someone had painted something that was really over the top and awful in terms of a, uh, you know, racist and sexist stuff, it's quite easy to just look at a painting and say, good Lord, what is that all about? And then to alter course, because it's not, um, Acceptable. Well, in music, we just we hide behind the, the quote unquote notes on the page. We fool ourselves into thinking that it couldn't possibly have anything to do with the human experience, the human condition. And we've done a really good job of selling that bill of goods to not just our students in our classes, but really to the world. Right. How could Beethoven possibly have anything to do with race? Well, I've written a book now where I hope to, to connect those dots where the reader can say, oh, it actually has a lot to do with race. It's not Beethoven the person. It's what we've done with Beethoven since he died in 1827. And we have essentially you know, created an entire structure of how we teach music, whereby knowledge of Beethoven, knowledge of Bach is a requirement you must go through. There's no option to not go through that. And if I could just point out, also, we've we've essentially told our students that the only instrument that matters is the piano, and the things that happen as a result of piano playing and piano composing, like you know, an opera, right? If if a composer wrote an opera, well, Mozart wrote operas, but he was a pianist writing an opera, right? And that's fine. You know, there's no problem with that. And if you want, if you enjoy it, knock yourself out. But the fact that there is this. Uh, belief that the piano is somehow above all other instruments. In fact, as I'm sure you know, um, and I'm sure most listeners know, um, to be a music major in the United States, nine times out of ten requires piano for pr- proficiency. Doesn't require proficiency on the erhu or the oud or 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 the cello. My instrument. Maybe we should do cello actually. <laughs> Everybody should know the cello in order to get your music degree. <laughs> so you know it's it's um and, and the piano li- doesn't have anything to do directly with race uh, or gender it's just an instrument that evolved but it's an instrument that evolved with an equal temperament and 12 tones and we're told that that is the be-all and end-all of the musical experience on planet earth and then when something does not comport to the 12 tonedness of our world that we've been taught then we then we other it like oh that's microtonal Music that ood player is playing in a microtonal fashion because it's not twelve tones, right? And you ask the ood player, you're like, "Wow, this is great microtonal music you're playing," and they'd be like, "I don't know what that means. I'm just playing in tune, man. You know, <laughs> I just play in tune. I'm trying. I'm working. And and there, that's just their system, right? But that, but that's that's colonial. That's hege- hegemony, right? Mapping your your colonial beliefs onto other cultures and peoples. And we could say the same thing happens with uh, the way we understand uh, our 12 tone world of music and then map it onto five line staves. Even if it's something you're, you know, you're transcribing in South America in an ethnomusicological sense. Oftentimes you'll, you'll try to put it onto a five line staff. Although many ethnomusicologists understand that the folly in that, and they don't try to do that.
1: Um, so you're starting to now bring in in that answer sort of the the challenges of um, dismantling these systems and DEI initiatives that um, are are supposed to help with that, and you point out that um, the Society for Music Theory has had I think 25 years of diversity initiatives which have not worked uh, based upon the uh, percentage of non-white people um, in in the society and in the field at large. I think we could say that for most academic fields, that uh, those all those diversity initiatives have largely failed. Um, what do you, why has that happened? Why are these initiatives so um, ineffective?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um... I think that they're ineffective because the people at the top actually don't want to see the numbers change. They actually don't believe that in fact, the people at the top very often, not all, certainly, but many of them actually don't believe that Margaret bonds was as great a composer as Robert Schumann. And they just, they, it, it's, there's, it's, it's, something. it's almost as if their, their, their minds are short circuiting when, I'm very clearly making links to white supremacy and patriarchy with the academic study of music, because it's it's a difficult thing to realize later in your career. I, I play all 32 sonatas by Ludwig von Beethoven. That's what I've kind of bet the farm on. Right. That's what I do. I'm a Beethoven pianist. OK. And you do Chopin, you know, all his uh, preludes, and etc. Um, but it's a very difficult thing. To realize later in one's career that what you have believed does, in fact, align to some extent with the basic tenets of white supremacy and the basic tenets of patriarchy. It's much easier to continue to deny that it does, and then to, in a DEI sense, say, yes, Black Lives Matter, they do. Um, and essentially, You know allocate some money for a concert that's going to feature black composers or women composers and that's that's great you can do that these are dei initiatives but as i say uh, often dei initiatives are the oxygen that white male structures need to maintain power and justify their existence in the 21st century it's extremely important in other words dei uh the, the power structures of music wouldn't be doing this at all if not forced To do it they don't believe it oftentimes there are individuals within within the power structures who most certainly do and who really are acting in very good faith who want to make the changes but the the larger institutions themselves are very loath to make those changes the larger institutions such as the metropolitan opera the new york philharmonic goodness let's leave music and think about large institutions like the catholic church right or i don't know Uh, the the National Football League, when Colin Kaepernick started, um, you know, kneeling during the National Anthem, that that, that they saved the institution of the NFL over human beings, right? The the rights and dignities of human beings. Um, And within our musical institutions, we do the same thing. And it actually shouldn't surprise us, uh, I, I think, that we do the same thing. We actually want to maintain the piano proficiencies. We want to maintain violin privilege. We want to, the violinists want to maintain the idea that they deserve power and privilege in our conservatories and music institutions by virtue of the fact that they play the violin well, which is nonsense. But historically, they have gotten power because they play the violin well and because Mozart wrote five concertos for the violin. And Brahms wrote a concerto and Beethoven wrote a concerto and Tchaikovsky wrote a concerto. Now, those are all beautiful works with the exception of Mozart. I'm not a big fan of Mozart, but (laughs) but um, that doesn't mean that somebody should have power because they could play the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. It just means that they should be able to play it somewhere if if they play it well. And if people want to come and listen to it, that's great. I would go as I I literally just saw it at the New York Phil uh, in January because I love that piece. Um, but in terms of the DEI and why it's, why it's failing is because the structures just don't want to see the changes. If we actually were to make changes to reflect the racial will and gender will of the people in our music institutions, there wouldn't be 94% white people who have tenure in our music institutions in music theory, there'd be 50% white people. 55, 60, let's call it. There are currently about 60% white people in the United States. That's what it would be. And that's unnerving. Um, And people don't want to believe that it's because of whiteness. They don't want to believe that it's because of their cisgender maleness. They just want to believe that it's because they can play Beethoven really well. And it's really hard. I get it. It's hard to look in the mirror. I I was saying this earlier Um, and and to, to admit to yourself, that, that your beliefs do in fact align to some extent with, with patriarchy and white supremacy. But for those of us, I include myself here, uh, who have done so and acknowledged it, admitted it to ourselves, and then started to alter course, now, I'm not alone, I can name many people who've done that happily. Um, and I'm talking about people who, I'm 57, right? So it's you know, people who are my age or, 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 or even older I, I really salute those people. Shoot me an email, give me a call. I want to talk with you because it's very difficult. There are some bitter pills out there to swallow, but swallow we must, right? Um, the DEI initiatives, which are now under fire themselves in Republican legislatures across the country, really only go so far. I make a distinction between DEI and true anti-racism and, and anti-sexism in, in my book. And I think that we need to be bolder When we start talking about these things, we need to force the issue um, as hard as that might be to hear for some people who are who would rather just sit on the sidelines and keep things the way they are.
1: Um, I was struck at the amount of the book that is Um, related to your own experiences. And I wondered why you made that choice because you obviously could have made these points without bringing in quite as much as you did. So why do that?
0: Yeah, great, great question. Um, You know, I'm not sure I could have made the points without bringing my own experiences into into the equation. You know, um, anti-racist scholars are often... uh, we're often dinged for quote unquote, storytelling, right? Um, Critical race theory as a field, like the actual honest Harvard legal 1980s, Derrick Bell, you know, Mari Matsuda, Kimberly Crenshaw, critical race theory is often faulted for, for storytelling. That's what people say. They're not storytelling. They're actually presenting facts, right? Just because it's a first person narrative doesn't mean that it's not factual. Right? everything that happened for instance when the music theory online tried to suppress publication of my article i'm just citing emails that i got i can produce the emails and i know that the people who sent them know that i could produce them because they sent them right i'm not presenting things just that are just hearsay right i'm showing things that happened to me in my actual life based on facts and as I say, I'm trying to be as unbiased. And I, and I note that I don't use the word objective here because that's a word that's often used as a cudgel in journalism and, and other places. I'm just being objective. Beethoven was the greatest composer ever, right? That's just objective. No, it's not. It's not. The, the objectivity doesn't exist. It's being subjective. You believe that, but please don't try to say that everyone else should believe that because for some people it's just not true. Um, so, uh, you know, the first person aspect it, it's, it's almost as if when you are, when you are um, I, I, maybe I should cite Ibram Kendi here, who, who certainly had a great impact on me, his writings, who, al- who also has lots of first-person narratives, especially in, in his second book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, because it's the only way to, to come to a deeper understanding of what is actually happening outside of my own body, right? And I also think that it's extremely important to see some of the anti-blackness that's happened uh, in my life, but also obviously in other people's lives. Because if it's just factual, again, like email here, um, something else that happened there that's verifiable, right? Then, then I think a lot of people will look at it and say, well, of course, the first thing that people say when they hear something bad happened to you because of race is, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's a very human Response, right? And I would just say to everybody who's ever said that or who would want to say that to somebody who, like me, who gets called an N I G G E R, which has happened in my life several times, um, I would say, don't say you're sorry that that happened. Please, I don't need that. I'm not interested in hearing that somebody is sorry that somebody called me an N I G G E R. Please keep those words to yourself. Instead, why don't you actually do something actively yourself, forget, don't tell me about it. I don't even know, but do something yourself that is going to help correct a situation whereby people still call black people N I G G E R S. Right. Um, I think it's really important. Some of the first person narrative that I've, I've laid out in this book for people to understand this is who I am. If you are um, uh, upset, with first-person narratives, well, then don't read the book, obviously. Just, you don't need to. No one's holding a gun to your head. Just don't do that. Um, But if you uh, are interested in hearing a a perspective, a testimony, in a sense, of what the field looks like from someone it was designed to ignore. By the way, I get that verbiage from uh, Eli Mistel, who wrote a beautiful book. He's a lawyer for the nation black man, Harvard law degree, Harvard undergrad. He wrote a great book called allow me to retort a black guy's guide to the constitution just came out about six months ago. You're welcome, Eli. I don't know you, but, <laughs> um, a great book. And, uh, he, he said essentially that this book is, is from my perspective, because it, I'm going to unpack the Constitution because it was designed to ignore me. This is from the perspective of someone it was designed to ignore, and I I lifted that, I without citation, but that's actually pretty generic. So again, sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, music theory was absolutely designed to ignore blackness. Music theory is without question anti-black, at its core. Um, that upsets people, but I'm okay with that. I'm simply stating a fact. Uh, Anti-blackness is the flip side of white supremacy, and American music theory is deeply rooted in both anti-blackness and white supremacy. It just is, and the the sooner that we can all accept that simple fact, again a fact, this is not an open question, and start to actually make changes based on that simple fact, then I think the sooner we can all um, begin to enjoy, well, as I say in the title of the book, a more welcoming. Uh, music theory for everyone.
1: Well, I would love to continue talking about this. I think our time is drawing to a close, and I am sure that this book will continue to provoke a lot of introspection and thoughts and hopefully actions, more importantly, um, in the field. Um, and certainly it, uh Uh, did that for me um, as a white person um, who teaches these kinds of things and, and um, wants to do better every day. So uh, I appreciate um, uh, everything that was written in this book. I wonder what are you going to do now or what are you working on now that this book is out?
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, I think I mentioned uh, during, during our conversation, I'm co-authoring, A new undergraduate music theory textbook it'll come out with norton uh, probably early next year i would say Um, my co-authors are aaron grant cora paulthy and rosa abrahams and we meet weekly on zoom and it's just invigorating exhilarating Um, they've taught me so much about how to re-envision music theory in our country and uh, so that is one of the main projects um, i'm working on Oh, by the way, the book will be called The Engaged Musician Theory and Analysis for the 21st Century. Um, aside from that, I I'm slated to have a sabbatical, I think, coming up uh, maybe 2024. So I have another book project that I would like to unpack Um i maybe i maybe i won't say exactly what it what it's about because i'm it's very much a work you know it's brewing in my mind but uh, a a book project for that time off uh, that i hopefully will have and aside from that i have um just other you know some smaller articles that i would like to do so i don't know exactly what what's uh what's happening with with the other research stuff i suppose the last thing i would mention is one thing that i've really enjoyed is 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 continually finding and unearthing uh, interesting new music by African-American composers. Um, And I uh, was able to um, orchestrate a a small overture, Pilgrim Overture, Seven Minutes, by John Thomas Douglas. He was a 19th century um, African-American composer, studied in Europe, actually, in Germany and France. Uh, He was born in 1847. His mother was a slave. and uh, I had that performed recently, Manus uh, College Orchestra, played it at Alice Tully Hall here in New York City, which was really a, a wonderful experience. Um, so I will, I think, continue to find, so, so many of the uh, composers, African-American composers, they wrote an enormous amount of music, but oftentimes it's in, you know, uh, it needs to be transcribed, it needs to be notated in Sibelius or something and and, um, and in order to be performed, right? So. That's something that I'm, I'm kind of a passion project to because there's so much wonderful music out there that might not be heard simply because there's there's not you know sheet music to pass around to play a string quartet or something like that. So that's also a way that I'm spending some time.
1: Well, all those projects sound amazing. I'm particularly looking forward to engaged music theory because we need an engaged music history survey text as well. And hopefully, I don't know if there's anyone working it on now, but hopefully uh, that book will serve as a model for other kinds of textbooks to start to break down those gatekeeping and... I don't know, artificial barriers that are created, uh, that have been created over time for the very reasons that we've been talking about (laughs) in this conversation. So um, those sound like great projects. Thank you so much for joining me. I have been talking to Philip Ewell about his book On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone published by University of Michigan Press in 2023. My name is Kristen Turner and this is New Books in Music. Thank you so much for, for being here today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. Uh, This was fun. Thank you.